Let us pray. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have prepared us to come and hear the word of the Lord, the testimony of our great God. Lord, would you please delight to open to us now an understanding of your word so that we might see the glories of heaven most profoundly seen in the person of Jesus and declared through us, through Abram and Sarah and Hagar today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16? If you didn't bring a Bible with you, that's great. We provided one for you there in one of the chairs. You can grab that and, and turn Genesis, the first book of the Bible, to chapter 16. This is God's Word. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and she saw that she had conceived. She looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son and shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction or misery. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahiroi. It lies between Kadesh and Barad. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. As we come to this passage, we're going to be looking today. We've been looking each week, and I've, hopefully you've started to get this pattern of the Lord of something. We're seeing the Lord display himself in various capacities of his character and of his actions. And this morning we're looking at the Lord of mercy. And what I want you to see in this passage is we've come out of several passages here where Abram has looked really awesome. You know, I mean, he, he went up against uh, the, four, or the five kings, the, the, or the four kings rather, the mashers and smashers, Ketalomar and his clan and had defeated those which the five kings, including the king of Sodom, was unable to defeat. And he gave a tenth of, what he, of all he had to Melchizedek. God has blessed him, and, and he refused to be enriched by the king of Sodom, but rather was trusting in the Lord. And then we come into that great 
place of, of Genesis 15 where God makes this wonderful covenant with Abram, and Abram believes God's promises, and it's credited to him as righteousness. And the great declaration, which we talked about last week, that the New Testament picks up on, this is a powerful passage. And then we come to 16. And in 16, what we see is a reality that 10 years has passed since chapter 15. And we realize that the struggles and the hardships and the ongoing realities of everyday life affect people oftentimes not to their good or necessarily God's glory. And that's what we're beginning to see in this passage here as it unfolds is we see that there's a wear and a tear of life when God's promises seem to lag. They don't seem to come true in a twinkling of an eye. We, we're waiting on the Lord and even the most faithful of people which certainly we would consider in Scripture looks to Abram and says Abram was a faithful man we realize that there is a struggle. Once again, as we've seen before, Abram, the man of faith, as Paul calls him in Romans 4, is going to blow it. He's not going to, to be the way he ought to be. His wife is going to blow it. Their servant is going to blow it. But what we're going to see is, is that God continues to be the Lord of mercy despite human frailty and failing. And so as we begin to look and as we begin to pass through this, what I want us to see is, is that what affects Abram in this passage, and, and I want to just say this kind of on the front end so you see it over, overarching this whole section of Scripture. Abram already was kind of a unique individual for his day. Why do I say that? Because Abram was monogamous. That was very unusual for a man to be with the wealth and the power that Abram had. Monogamy was just not a normal process that most people that had money lived under. We've already seen that when he went into Egypt, his wife was immediately taken into a harem of a whole lot of other women. Abram was unique in some ways and kind of stands out as here's this man who has but one wife. And it harkens us back to Genesis, the very beginning, right? When God made them male and female. And he had a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to a woman. But in this passage, what we will see is, is that even Abram is not able to hang on, if you will, to that view, that belief. The other thing I want you to notice is what that began to show in Abram was a commitment to Sarai, which was a, a beautiful thing to his family and to the nations around him because, and again, he was unique. After this chapter is over, Abram no longer can claim that uniqueness. He has taken to himself a second wife, Hagar. And no longer does that ideal of Scripture hold true for the man of faith. So what I want us to see in this is that there's this struggle going on. There's this pressure. And we see ultimately that that pressure doesn't come from the culture at large. It's not the culture outside of him. It's not his Philistine or Hittite or Amorite brothers around him who say, hey, you know, Sarah can't bear you a child. She's got all these other women in, in your entourage. Why don't you take one of them and have yourself some boys? Get yourself an heir. There's just nobody outside of Abram, it's right there in his own tent. 
where that view is undermined. But that has to be in some ways instructive for us. Because oftentimes as Christians, we tend to build up a view which says, if I can just keep all the bad stuff out and keep all the good stuff of us in, we're going to be okay. But what happens when you finally start to realize that the bad stuff is not out there? The bad stuff is right in here. See, that's the testimony of Scripture. That what's messed up is not all the sinful people doing all the sinful things down the street from us, down the block from us, that in the city way away from us safe up here in our northern suburbs or our eastern suburbs or our southwestern Suarita suburbs. The reality is, is that the biggest sin problem we're going to face is right in our own hearts and in our own home. And what we see here is, is that we desperately need to see a vision of the Lord of mercy if we are going to sustain and be sustained in that walk God has called us to. So we're going to look at three points. The first point I want us to look at is the defective plan. What we see is a plan that's hatched by Sarah. I mean, you know, and you can understand this. God's made a promise all along that he was going to make Abram's seed numerous. And so she figures, you know, I'm old. I'm shriveled up. I'm barren. But maybe there's still a bit of life left in Abram, and if we get him a younger woman, he could still produce some offspring, and we would see this plan worked out, and there will be an heir, and it'll all be good. And so she begins to hatch a plan, which interestingly enough, if you start to compare it to Genesis chapter 3, looks awfully similar. And I want us to do that for just a moment. I want us to look at how what Sarah says and what Eve says are very similar. Because we start to realize that there's a reason why chapter 16 is here. Chapter 16 is trying to link for us the reality of the fall of humanity to everyday life of a man of faith. And I want you to look at that. If you would just keep your finger here in chapter 16, but go back to chapter 3. I just want to read a couple of verses there for us as we begin to look through this section, because I think it's important for us to see how this plan works itself out. So in chapter 3, verse 2, we see, it says, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Now notice back here in 16, chapter 2, it says, And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now then, in, 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 in um, 3.17, God speaks back to Adam and says this of him. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded, you shall, shall not eat of it. Curses the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. The key, the key on, in on there is he listened to the voice of his wife in this matter. And notice what 16.2 says. And Abram listened to the voice of of Sarai. And then it comes to 16.3, which tells us this. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, for her servant. And we see 
that in 3.6 it tells us, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And lastly, we see in 6.13.3, the last part, and gave it to her husband as his wife, we see the reality that she not only was complicit in what she did, but she draws her husband into it as well. And what I want us to see here is not to get all down on Sarai as like she's the bad person, any more than we should get down on Eve, because we know when God comes calling in the Garden of Eden, who's he go talk to? That would be Adam. And the interesting thing here is all the conversations that God has been having with Abram and his family have been with Abram. Who's responsible to keep the focus on the promise? Well, the whole family, but certainly Abram, as the head of that family, is to keep his eyes on the promise. And this is what ultimately starts to make this a defective plan, is the fact that in every way, shape, and form, the hope is put in the flesh. What can happen? How can we get us a child rather than a focus on God's promises. Notice, Sarai's assessment of her condition was correct. We know we're going to see in the next few chapters, those of us who've peeked ahead a bit and have, 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 read, have read the rest of the story, so to speak, as Paul Harvey would say, we know that they're going to have a child, but we also know it's going to be a miraculous child. Abram and Sarah, even by this time of life, are beyond what is normative for childbearing years. And so we see that there is a reality that she speaks to, but that reality does not lead her to trust in God. It rather leads her to seek her own ways. The other thing I want us to look at in a practical reality of this is no one considered the fallout, did they? And this is oftentimes how we can tell when we're not keeping our eyes on the promises of God, but rather are looking in the flesh. We don't think about the fallout. What's going to be the consequences of these choices? It's rather, look, we'll have an heir. Notice that all through this, it's been about an heir. Lord, I don't have an heir. You, Eliezer of Damascus is going to be my heir. No, I'm going to give you a son. Believe that. Know that. Trust that. Well, okay, we'll trust it sort of. But when 10 years have gone by and you still haven't come through, Lord, we've got to do something. Maybe God's gone to sleep. Maybe he's got more important things to do. And see, we would sit there, many of us would say, I would never think such a thing about God. Really? Well, you'd never say that openly. You'd never admit it in those kind of fashions. But how often do we find ourselves in situations where we go, the Lord wants X, Y, and Z to take place. And so we begin to try and manufacture those things ourselves rather than trusting and waiting in the Lord's timing. Some of this can even happen in the way we approach growing up as Christians. So often we put pressure on one another as believers to grow up in our faith that oftentimes people tend to be stunted in their growing up, in their maturity, because there's an expectation of you've been a Christian for 10 years and you're still struggling with that? You're still wrestling like that? You still have those kind of problems? 
And so oftentimes people will tend to try to do the very thing that many of us in this congregation would immediately snap our heads to attention in if it was the idea that someone was somehow trying to save themselves or to get God's favor by works. But we begin to put our emphasis on works when it comes to how we grow in the faith rather than seeing that it is firmly rooted in the promises of God and His faithfulness to His people not in their faithfulness to Him, because if it's rooted in our faithfulness to Him, as we see with Abram, as we see with Sarai, we're in big trouble. Now, if anyone heard me say we ought not try then, that's not what I said. I said we ought to strive to serve the Lord. I am saying that completely. But if our hope rests in, somehow I've got to stay right, we're going to struggle we're going to feel the weight of our sin continuously pressing down on us. We're going to feel the weight and desire of seeing these things happen. Because realize, with Abram, don't take this to be in their minds somehow that they've got this attitude that says, we're just going to depend on our flesh. God's abandoned us. That's not it at all. You would miss the whole point of this passage. These are people who are seeking to be faithful. They're trying to craft a plan to live faithfully before God. God promised a child. Maybe this is what he wants us to do. God promised that we would grow up in the faith. Maybe we should try this or this or this, rather than trusting in the slow, steady outworking of life that God calls us to. Oftentimes, we want to speed it up. And I'll just show you a way of this, that this works out very practically, at least in my life, and see if this in some way relates to yours. I can't tell you how many times I have sat and praying to God and said, God, why do you keep allowing me to stay in this particular place in my life or to struggle in these particular areas? Wouldn't it be a whole lot more effective for your glory if you just like cleaned me up and just kind of, you know, light eared me ahead a couple of a couple of light years in my Christian walk. I mean, especially as a pastor. I mean, you know, it's unseemly for pastors to still be struggling in these. We ought to be way up here. Anybody else relate to that? Why does God take so long to grow Christians up? See, don't you understand? That's kind of what we should see in this passage. Sarah's trying to figure out God's got a plan, something's wrong. It ought not take 10 years to get a kid. we got to get a plan. But you understand that it's that kind of thinking that makes the plan defective. And it makes the plan not thinking through all the issues. It also shows the exposure of a, of a hard issue of trust. God has made promises, and this is another way to look at it. How do we get those promises? Do not... Do, do we not see how God wants us to, to use us? Don't we see that? Don't we understand God wants to use us? How, do, how are we going to be used? We assume that when things are not on my timetable, they are not on God's either. That's, that's a huge one for us. You know, it's not on my timetable. I'm a Christian. I'm living faithfully. I read my Bible twice a day. I pray three times a day. I witness at least three times a week. I put up with a really... Horrible boss. I mean, come meet him if you don't believe me. Etc., etc., etc. And so when it doesn't happen, we assume that, that we must have missed something because God's timetable and ours are in sync. 
We often are people, when we're struggling in trust, who are counting our unblessings, that's my word, rather than seeing that God is using even our most difficult circumstances to make us fit for heaven and to be made whole. So that's the other problem is when we're in struggling, difficult situations and it seems to linger on, we start to count our unblessings. See, this is a problem, and 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 this is out of whack. So we could sing that, that old Baptist hymn, right? Count your unblessings, name them one by one. Count your unblessings, see what God hasn't done. We often find ourselves right there, and so that leads us into a defective plan. The other thing, what it's betraying there really is a defective faith. We see in this passage, then, a defectiveness of the participants of faith. First, Abram was right to see that it was through him that the seed would come, but he failed to hold fast to the promises rather than to the flesh. What I want you to notice, what happens here, is basically you have Sarai who says, okay, I've got a plan. She hatches it with her husband, and she hatches it with Hagar, and I would imagine if it works the way most of the time it works, it was hatched with Hagar and Sarai before it got to Abram. Abram was, was the last person to know how the, how the plan was going to get hatched. But he said, okay, that sounds fine. So he enters into this relationship with Hagar. She gets pregnant. Well, naturally, what would any woman do when she looks at that old woman there who you've had him for 40 or 50 years and no baby? One time and... Pregnant, it's obviously your problem. See, one of the things you need to understand that was going on in this period of time was God's favor was seen in being able to get pregnant. So obviously, what does Hagar assume? You can't get pregnant, you old hag. I can get pregnant. Who does God love? God maybe is going to bless Abram, but it's not with you. It's with me. Do you see how that happened there? And so now we see Abram, this great man of faith, this great man of insight, this great man who just loves the Lord so much and is going to give this great dictum of wisdom to Hagar and his wife. On this matter, his wife comes and says, this woman is treating me with contempt. Now let's step back a moment. Who gave the woman to Abram to begin with? That's beside the point. Has anybody been in this conversation in your own homes? What's rational discussion got to do with it? She's looking down on me. She's being contemptuous. And so Abram, full of wisdom, full of courage, full of boldness, says, do whatever you want. I wash my hands of the matter. That's what he says. Wow! Wow! That's the kind of leadership we just basically just are dying for these days, right? I ain't got a clue. I'm going to go to my room. I'm going to put on my headphones. I'm turning my iPod up a little more. I'll be in there playing a computer game. Get back to me when the problem's solved. I mean, do you understand? This is Abram. Uh, this isn't Lot. This isn't Samson. This isn't any of those other guys we could pick up and name, even though they're actually looked at rather favorably in the New Testament. A lot of man of righteousness. Samson's name mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 in the hall of God's faithfulness. This is Abram. 
who says to his wife, you take care of it. You do whatever you feel like you need to do. She's under your control. And lastly, what we see here is we see a woman who just says, I've had enough. I'm out of here. If that's how things are going to operate, see ya. Do you see the reality of our culture right here? I did something stupid. You need to fix it. You did something stupid. I don't want to fix it. Both of you are stupid. I'm getting out of here. (laughs) I really want us to understand that this is really speaking into our world, into the world we live in. Ancient text, relevant message, right where we live. And so what I want us to then see is that part of why they caught, how did they get there, is the fact that it showed the inability for any of them to really believe in the miraculous. And that may seem like something, you're like going, Dennis, okay, you showed us relevance, and now you're going to go to miracles? I mean, you know, we're a scientific bunch of people, you know, come on, miracles? But don't you understand that that's exactly what the problem is here? God has made a promise and said, nothing can stop me. Not your stupidity, not your wrong thinking, not your wrong actions, not sin, not nations, not powers, not principalities. Nothing can stop me from accomplishing my purposes. And it's their failure to believe that that leads them into all kinds of problems. See, it's a defective faith which is the root of the defective plan. And so the passage continues to unwind to us, and we see that we need to learn a few things from here. One of them is, in a defective faith, is is that we, we tend to start to get into this notion that God helps those who help themselves. Now, we won't say that. Many of us are way too sophisticated. We've read enough theological books to know we're not going to say God helps those who help themselves. But oftentimes we believe that. If I just work harder, if I'm just more faithful, if I just act more diligently, if I'm sure to read my children the right kind of Bible story, if I just do it all right, somehow it'll all work out. And then when it doesn't, what do you have to say? I mean, we're looking at a beautiful child we're about to baptize. He's as sweet as pie. The bottom line is every child born to human beings is chock full of sin and left to themselves has enough evil to make Hitler look like he was just not trying hard enough to be evil. That's the truth. We need to understand that we need to really believe that God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who realize they are helpless just like a little baby and who are dependent upon Him not just for the things that are too big for us to handle but for even the small things. In all things, Christ preeminent. In all things, God supreme. One of the things I've been challenged in my own life is to start praying for things that seem small. Just small stuff like, 
Lord, I got an oil leak in the car. Well, that's small. You know, you just take it down to the shop and fix it. But do you understand, it's those kind of things, I think, that really are our undoing because we start to get into this mindset that somehow God helps those who help themselves. You know, you go down there and you get that fixed. You go down there and get that fixed. You go down there and do this. We come to the church. We fix all these things. And we lose sight of the fact that it's only by God's mercy that any of these things take place. It's only by God's mercy that we understand and appropriate things rightly and see things correctly and do things even in small ways the way they ought to be done. And we understand that that is miraculous. We forget that the normal reality of living in a human world is for things to fall apart. Not for things to get put together. We fall under that utopian illusion. The thing I want us to see before we move to the last point is, is that God is not sitting around waiting on us. God is at work in us to willing to work for his good pleasure. In the midst of all of this struggle, Hagar sets off into the wilderness. She will not bend the knee to an abusive and oppressive mistress. And I want you to understand that we need to get a hold of what's happening here in some ways. Remember, in chapter 15, God's promised Abram, 430 years, your offspring will be under bondage, under a curse. Under what people? Egyptians. What's Hagar's nationality? Egyptian. She's sitting underneath Sarah. She doesn't that much like it. And she says, I'm out of here. You see, one of the things that we need to come to understand in our faith is, is that God is determined to change us and transform us, not in the manner that we think is best, but in the manner He thinks is best. Not because He's out to do us a bad turn. See, too often we tend to look at a verse like I just read from Philippians. It says, God is at work to willing to work for us for His good pleasure. And we take that good pleasure and this is what we do. We say, yeah, His good pleasure. And see, that is to totally misunderstand the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible who found Abram as a moon worshiper, worshiping the moon goddess and other gods, and drawing her and him, Sarai, and Abram to himself, taking them to a place, giving them a heritage, giving them a place, giving them a name, giving them a purpose, giving them a destiny. But it's not without struggle. It's not without hurt. It's not without loss. It's not without disappointment. And oftentimes we find ourselves chafing rather than embracing that everything God allows to happen to us is for our good. Because that's the kind of God He is. The last thing I want us to look then is to see that He is in fact good. Look at what happens here. Hagar's fleeing. She's going back to Egypt. We know that because of where this spring on the way to Shur is. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant. You shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinmen. So this is what she said. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, 
Here I have seen him who looks after me. Now, it's interesting what happens here. Because she's on her way back home. She came out of Egypt most likely when Abram and Sarah went down there. She came out with them. She's headed back home. And she meets God. She meets the angel of the Lord in a most surprising place. See, that's what she says. I'm so surprised to see you here. The part of that's potentially that she's thinking about the Lord being the Lord of Abram and in that little geographical area and not the Lord of the universe. But it could just be surprising because she knows and recognizes she's fleeing from Abram and she's trying to get away from them. And so she's shocked that the Lord of Abram would show up to speak to her. Even more surprisingly, and the New American Standard, I think, does a better job of translating this than the ESV does here or other translations when it says something to this effect. It's not so much that she's surprised that he's seen her as it is that she's shocked that, it, that she's seen him and she's still alive. Now, I want you to start to get a hold of that. I've told you all the mess that's going on in the tents of Abram to get to this point. What Hagar begins to see and what she's overwhelmed with is that her mistress is in the wrong, her master is in the wrong, she's in the wrong, and the Lord shows up and shows mercy. Do you understand how often our mindset is exposed? Because what we expect when God shows up, when we've done wrong things, is what? You're going to get it now. You just wait till your daddy gets home. I want to exhort parents. Moms, please never say that. You are instilling in your children a view of God, not just, what your husband, not just the view of your husband. You're instilling in your children a view of God which says somehow... When daddy gets home, goodness is gone, and all you're going to get is wrath. And I want you to see in your Bible what it teaches you is that when people are screwed up and fouled up and messed up, that God often delights to change their way of thinking, not by showing them even a spanking. It's to overwhelm them with goodness and delight. Do you see that in this text? Do you see the effectiveness of the Lord? He shows up. Hagar knows she's running. She's trying to get away. And God shows up and says, See how good I am. I'm going to give even your son. Not the blessing that Isaac's going to get, but he gets a blessing too. Not the name that Isaac gets, but he gets a name too. Not the land that Isaac gets, but he gets a place too. Now, some people look at this and say, well, this isn't that great a blessing. You're right, because he's not the promised son. But he's not left out in the cold either. And we need to understand that God is showing mercy to a woman who is running away. God is showing grace to a woman who showed contempt to others. And how often when people have offended us do we look and say, well, you have no idea what they did to me. And even worse, we say, you have no idea what they did to my friend. And what we see here is the Lord delighting to show mercy. 
Remember what he said. Abram, even if someone just looks at you wrong, I will curse them. Hagar's running away. And God delights to show mercy. Well, in conclusion, then, I want us to see this. What this passage confronts are at least three things, probably more, but at least these three things. One, a life of self-effort. A life of self-effort will not get us where we need to be. Not as Christians, certainly not as unchristians, but not as Christians either. Secondly, a life of restlessness. See, there's a restlessness that's going on in this passage. A restlessness of Sarai, a restlessness of Abram, a restlessness of Hagar. Restlessness. God, do something. God, if you're going to do it, do it now. And thirdly is a life of rebellion. Even subtle rebellion. Sarai and Abram are both in rebellion here. They are not following God's plan. Hagar certainly is in rebellion. Now this is what I want you to see then, that we see ultimately. The only way we're going to avoid living a life of self-effort, a life of restlessness, and a life of rebellion is to think about these things. First, that the ultimate seed that all of this chapter, all these chapters are pointing us to is Christ. And this is how we need to see this. First, Christ steps into this reality and takes on misery so that we might be shown mercy. See, that's why I told you before that in verse 11 it says, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. See, what we see is that the Lord showed up in her misery and showed her mercy. We see that most profoundly when we see Christ show up. And what does it become? A man of sorrow. A man of misery. A man of affliction. Why? So that he might show mercy, that we might be shown mercy. He takes on our affliction. And don't you see that that's ultimately what's happening in this passage is Hagar's not all right to do the things she's done. What possibly is holding back God's hand? And whether you believe that Ishmael, according to the Koran, is the father of all the Arabs, or you agree with other people that that's just what the Koran says, it really doesn't matter. The bottom line is, is that is it possible that the people who have settled in that area yet remains salvation to them? Arab, of all stripes, and Egyptians, and all those people groups. See, in some ways, what we see is hope, even for them. Secondly, Jesus is treated with contempt by those that should rightly have been condemned. Do you understand that? Jesus allows himself to be treated with contempt by those who rightly should be condemned. You see, until you can see that, until you can see Jesus has taken on that burden himself, and you see him for who he is, you're never going to be set free to let other people treat you contemptuously. You're always going to be striving and struggling to set things right in yourself. You did that to me. You have to be repaid. See, how do we repay evil with good? We have to see the good one who was taken on evil and treated evilly and showed us his goodness. The third thing then is this one. Jesus takes on the role of a suffering servant. 
so that we might be set free to serve others, knowing that our, our Lord sees and delights to show mercy. See, what it really boils down to is this, men and women. Until we become people who really see that Jesus was willing to be abused and beaten and misused in this life, until we're willing to own the fact that we were people just like the people who did it, we're not any better than them. That's what we would have done. Until we see what Jesus is willing to do for us in showing us mercy, we will never find the key to being willing to be merciful to others when they don't live up to the expectations that we think they should. We will look on them with contempt. We will rely on our own self-effort. We will always be restless and never finding rest because the place that that's found, as Augustine rightly said, is our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee, O Lord. May God help His people here today find their rest, find their mercy in Him that we might be people of mercy. Amen.